1: wherever you get your podcasts. My history can beat up your politics. The problem with politics today is that it's discussed in a vacuum. Nobody brings up the history behind today's events. Why do? my podcast, I take today's politics and smash them and bash them with a dose of history. So the politics come out different and you come out with a better understanding. I'm Bruce Carlson. Join me in History Beats Up on Politics. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. These words recited often by school children are not really the official words of the United States government. These are the words of Emma Lazarus, a poet, herself a Russian Jewish American immigrant, who wrote these words that she would never live to see on the Statue of Liberty as part of a fundraiser for that statue. In 1903, 17 years after President Grover Cleveland dedicated the Statue of Liberty, and four years after the poet's death, a philanthropist in New York who had read the poem in a bookstore paid for a bronze tablet to be fastened to an interior wall off the pedestal of the statue. No ceremony for that plaque was had. The Statue of Liberty itself was not a federal government project. The idea for the statue, as most of us know, came from France, but not from the government of France. It was actually a group of liberals in France who hated the government, the government of course being run at that time by Louis-Napoleon III, a dictator. These liberals wanted the type of government that the U.S. had, and in fact by the time the statue would actually be built, they would have that government and Louis-Napoleon would be long gone. So the original idea was actually not a statue about immigrants, although Uh, the designer for the, the original statue did come to New York and thought that the harbor where immigrants were arriving would be a great spot. Monies for the statue were raised not by the government of France or even by the moneyed elites in that country, but by average people participating in a lottery and buying small miniature versions of the statue that would be a precursor to today's merchandising of products. There was still the pedestal that the statue was to stand on. That was to be financed by America. But the U.S. government never paid for it. Funds towards the statue's pedestal were rejected by Congress. Many in the nation called it a New York statue and said if New York wants it, they can pay for it. And the New York legislature did approve a grant of $50,000. But the expenditure was vetoed by the governor. In the end, funds in America were raised from average people as part of a ploy by joseph pulitzer to boost circulation of his new york world newspaper every contributor would be mentioned in the newspaper no matter how small not only did pulitzer raise hundred thousand dollars for the statue but he increased his own circulation by fifty thousand additionally there was a campaign among african americans to raise funds for the statue as it would be partly a statue in celebration of the end of slavery the statue of liberty Sadly, that history of the statue really doesn't remain today, but thousands of African American adults and children raised money for the statue. The statue fulfilled that Frenchman's dream to be the first thing that immigrants would see upon their arrival to New York. The statue truly became a symbol of American patriotism, however, During World War I, she became a kind of female equivalent to Uncle Sam. The Treasury Department authorized using the statue as a rallying symbol on posters to raise war bonds. Governments government sold about $15 billion worth of bonds, equal to half the cost of World War I. In the end, the statue would prove more useful as a symbol of patriotism and a rallying point for the war as it would for a symbol of immigration, which by the time of that war was starting to be restricted. The odd and ambivalent history of the United States and the great colossus statue that everybody wanted, that everyone celebrated, but nobody wanted to pay for, is a perfect symbolism of how America has drifted through the immigration issue, and how the issue continues today. Bring immigrants in, we need them, but keep them out. Expand immigration, but close off the border. A Republican president wants immigration and a Republican Congress doesn't. Immigration has been popular in American myth and the image of our country. And immigration past is always popular. But immigration of present has rarely been popular with Americans. Congresses throughout history Tried to limit immigration. And presidents who have the responsibility of representing the entire nation in a broad, expansive, long-term thinking way, have usually been four. President Bush follows in a historical trend. Most presidents have celebrated and supported immigration. There are only about four exceptions, four presidents who didn't. And I would put in this minority presidents Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover, and Franklin Roosevelt. But the majority presidents in American history were pro-immigration for one reason or another. Presidents Cleveland, Taft, Wilson, and Truman would defy Congresses who passed anti-immigration bills and vetoed them. And so America has encouraged, celebrated, banned, refused to ban, squabbled over, and re-encouraged and compromised with immigration policy throughout its history. Okay, let's throw the ball deep and look way back in history. What would Washington, Jefferson, or even Lincoln have done with the issue of a legal alien. Well, to start, they probably wouldn't know what you were talking about because there was no such thing. From the founding of the country until the 1880s, borders were open. There was no limits to immigration, and so there could be no illegal aliens. The law said any alien, being a free white person, may be admitted to become a citizen of the United States. Prior to 1855, ships carrying passengers to the United States simply left them at the wharf. Now, the founding Fathers did want some limits as to who was coming in, though they welcomed immigrants. George Washington explained, we shall welcome them to a participation of all our rights and privileges, if by decency of conduct they appear to merit the enjoyment. He also favored assimilation into America. Washington wrote to Adams that he worried about the immigrants retaining the language, habits, and principles, good or bad, which they bring with them and favored an intermixture with our people, where they or their descendants get assimilated to our customs, measure, and we soon become one people. And while leaders like Washington were celebrating immigration, some fear of immigrants, and particularly the diseases they might spread, is showing up in newspapers of the time. In terms of law, the 1790 Naturalization Act made citizenship available to aliens after two years of residence. In 1798, it was adjusted to 14 years, and then in 1802, the interval was put back to five years, where it remained for quite a long time. And that was the end of the involvement for the federal government. The rest was up to states, who mostly wanted to attract settlers and immigrants. America was a new, in some cases empty, nation with lots of land to settle. And as the Industrial Revolution beckoned, lots of factories to work at. States had a liberal land laws and even sent out commissions to Europe to make their resources known to possible immigrants. And where needed, laws were actually passed to help immigrants. In 1819, a law was made to protect immigrants from dishonest shipmasters. It included minimum conditions of safety and sanitation. Manual labor was the lifeblood of the economy. More people were needed to make America strong. Immigration was celebrated. There are some laws passed by the states legislating against criminals or paupers immigrating. And there still is a concern about disease. After 1855, Castle Garden on the southern tip of Manhattan became an immigrant receiving center. The center enabled the U.S. government to keep better track of immigrants. Clerks would record the name, nationalities, and destination of immigrants. And physicians would give routine checkups and physicals to ensure that immigrants were healthy. Later, this receiving center at Castle Garden would be moved to the famous Ellis Island. In the beginning, the largest group of immigrants were Irish and German. Irish had several waves of immigration to the United States. Of course, the most famous was in the 40s and the 50s when there was a potato famine in Ireland. And this, combined with the California gold rush, drew many Irish here. From 1820 to 1880, Ireland sent 2.8 million, while Germany 3 million. And England, $2 When Irish Catholics came to America in great numbers, they aroused antagonistic feelings in Protestant. Not only from religious competition, but also the competition for jobs. There was even a political party, the Know-Nothings, formed unofficially against immigrants and Catholics in the mid-1800s. But these groups actually had little political power. They didn't win elections. And in fact, the immigrant groups, especially in cities like New York, Boston, and Philadelphia controlled more power and patronage. And some elites realized they could harness the political power of the new immigrant groups. Fernando Wood, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, was elected mayor of New York with the help of Irish Catholic. The 1860 Republican Party platform, in addition to calling for an end to slavery in the western states, called for an acceptance of immigrants regardless of where they were born as citizens of the United States. Irishmen earned their position in American society, both in the workplace and the battlefields of the Civil War. President Lincoln's Homestead Act of 1862 provided land grants that brought millions of land-hungry Scandinavians to the Midwest. There was also a very bad uh, Civil War and famine in the Scandinavian countries.
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out what could go right wherever you listen to podcasts. And the railroad also attracted many Irishmen, Swedes, and on the western side of the railroad, Chinese began entering the United States as desperately needed manual laborers for the railroad. The railroad had a strict deadline, needed to be completed. A lot of manual labor was needed. At the time, any way to get it done was accepted. Bringing immigrants in was seen as a good thing. But suddenly, less than two decades after the railroad was built, partially with Chinese laborers, America revolted against immigration from Asia, and all of a sudden Chinese laborers who had been welcomed during the construction of the railroad uh, were now banned. And the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act was actually the first piece of federal legislation limiting immigration in any way, shape, or form. It was passed by Congress and not opposed by President Arthur at the time. The law also set some limits on immigration, imposed a 50-cent tax on immigrants, and uh, banned immigrants coming in who might be a public charge. In other words, they wanted immigrants who wouldn't require help from the federal government. If you were not from Asia, it was still relatively easy from the 1890s to the 20s and to the United States. You just had to go through Ellis Island, be tested for diseases and seem to be physically fit. You had to have documents from your home country. You had to be mentally fit. You had to be ready for life in the U.S., Whatever that meant. And a great wave of European migration began in the latter half of the 1800s and continuing from 1990 to 1910 before the outbreak of World War I. From 1880 to 1930, 4.6 million uh, immigrants arrived from Italy, 4 million from Austria and Hungary, 3.3 million from Russia, 2.8 million from Germany, 2.3 million each from Canada and Britain, and 1.1 million from Sweden. In 1901 when President McKinley is shot by an anarchist who had immigrated to the United States, Congress did act but only to ban anarchists from entering the country, something that almost everyone could agree to. With the beginning of World War I, which was a war against Germany and a war against several southern European countries. Congress began to act, and they sent to Woodrow Wilson's desk the Immigration Act. It establishes a literacy requirement for immigrants and an Asiatic barred zone defined by latitude and longitude, specific areas. Prevented immigration from India, Indochina, Afghanistan, Arabia, the East Indies, and other Asian countries. There were already bans against China and Japan. Woodrow Wilson vetoes the bill, but the Congress overrides his veto. To understand somewhat what happened, one has to bring themselves back to the period around World War One. This was a time of rationing in the country. It was also a time of some racial uh, riots. It wasn't a great economy right after World War One. There'd been a lot of sacrifice. There was a Red Scare. It was a very difficult time in, in America, and so it really is America's kind of extending itself in World War I that starts to create a backlash against immigrants, or at least one that rises to the, national, the level of national action. A young politician who had been recently defeated on a ticket for vice president and had recently been stricken with polio took the then popular position that large-scale immigration had to be stopped. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's special ire was reserved for the Japanese who came to America. Californians, he said, have properly objected. The Japanese immigrants are not capable of assimilation into the American population. A bill in 1921 signed by President Harding and then culminated with the Johnson-Reed Act of 1924 set the first quotas In the United States, quotas based on national origin. And as you can imagine, the quotas were very high for Northern European countries and very low for immigrants from Asia and Southern Europe. As President Calvin Coolidge signed the bill in 1924, he said, we have to make sure America stays American. Words that today would be perceived as awful and racist. So throughout the 20s, immigration... Was, became tighter and tighter and more restrictive. Laws were passed under Herbert Hoover's administration. In 1921, over 800,000 immigrants came to the United States. 1931, just two years after the last of the most restrictive immigration bills had gone into effect, just over 97,000 came immigration levels would remain severely depressed until the 1940s. While racism and xenophobia may have been the reason for the immigration restrictions of the 1920s, the Great Depression of the 1930s added another reason, lack of jobs, lack of public support. The effects of the Depression were devastating, and not limited to economics. As the crisis worsened the pillars of recent immigrant communities, Local immigrant-owned businesses like butcher shops, haberdasheries, and banks collapsed. Immigrants previously had turned to these institutions in times of trouble, but the Great Depression eliminated the safety net, placing more pressure on already strapped private charities like religious organizations, state, and local governments. Not only did it limit the desire of immigrants to come here because, of course, there were very few jobs, the Roosevelt administration also stalled immigration issued as few visas as the law would allow. Roosevelt's strong anti-immigration stance has to a certain extent and may more in the future come to haunt his image as a great president. Many feel that he should have done more to allow more Jewish refugees from Germany to come to the United States. Instead, Roosevelt and his State Department insisted on the narrow interpretation of the law going back to 1882, back to the Chinese Exclusion Act, which blocked immigrants who would come here without assets and who may become public causes. He felt it was better not to adjust that policy. The problem was that many of the immigrants who could potentially come from, uh, Jewish immigrants from Germany, have been stripped of a lot of their wealth and belongings. So it was impossible for them not to fit into that category. Now we have to be fair and say it's very debatable what information the Roosevelt administration really had on the atrocities at the time of World War II when decisions could have been made about these immigration matters. While many criticize Roosevelt for this action, as far as some labeling him an anti-Semite for this reason, it's also an acceptable interpretation and, and a logical one, that Roosevelt was more concerned with immigrants coming and taking jobs at a time when jobs were scarce to the extent that the federal government had to provide money to create them. So even a few you know, hundred thousand immigrants could create, potentially, an economic crisis in a city. And it's also logical that Roosevelt was simply following the politics of the time, however misguided they see today. The U.S. government did institute the Bracero Program in 1942, which was intended to meet a supposed farm labor shortage during World War II. The program ended up lasting 22 years and brought in 4.5 million workers from Mexico. It reached its annual peak of 450,000 workers in 1956. It's widely believed that growers abused the immigrants who participated in this program, And some believe it laid the foundation for illegal immigration, developing the networks between growers and immigrant smugglers in Mexico. And by providing an ample labor force of often low-paid, abused workers, it induced growers to plant high-profit, labor-intensive crops. And some, particularly among the southern states, feel that it gave California an unnecessary advantage. So it's interesting, while there's this restrictive immigration policy, there's also this great exception. After World War II, spouses who had married soldiers, as well as displaced persons of Europe, were allowed into the country. And immigration increased in a way that it hadn't been since the turn of the century. Then came the backlash. In 1952, Congress passed the McCarran-Walter Act, which essentially reinforced the notion of quotas of national origin limiting by country who would come into the United States. Truman angry vetoed the legislation calling immigration the dead hand of policy. John F. Kennedy as a candidate criticized national origins and said it served no purpose. But it was not till Lyndon Johnson and the Congress of 1965 that national origin quotas would be eliminated. So the Hart-Seller Act was intended just as a minor part of civil rights legislation. Ended discrimination by race and put in provisions that relatives of those who were here would be not part of the quota. Immigration grows by leaps and bounds. And then there's another backlash. And in 1986, Ronald Reagan seeks a compromise. Reagan sought a law that would both... Reduce the number of illegal immigrants, but also provide for those who were already here. The law has been hotly debated since it created three million amnesty cases. Those were illegal aliens from Mexico who, legal aliens who were already here, were allowed to stay in 1990. Congress extended the amnesty of 1986 to include immigrants' families. So again, this kind of back and forth on immigration policy. In the 90s, there's a backlash to the 1986 law and a Republican Congress. 1996, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act called for a tough border crackdown, more spending on border enforcement, increased spending from $1 billion to $5 billion a year, more spending for detention and removal, the erection of barriers in San Diego and El Paso. But this law had an unanticipated result, that of interrupting circular migration patterns, trapping Mexican immigrants who were here, and really providing a barrier to them going back home. So instead of becoming temporary workers, they became, in a sense, permanent Americans. That's at least what some studies conclude. And that brings us to where we are in the immigration debate, a strange debate with strange bedfellows. The Democrats in Congress and the Republican President Bush with a very similar position on immigration. A Republican Congress very much against immigration and planning to use it as an issue in the 2006 election year. It's not a situation where it looks like much legislation is going to be passed since the President seems determined to veto any legislation that might come forward and the Congress doesn't have enough members to override such a veto. American immigration policy is likely to remain where it's been for most of America's history with some quasi-emergency interruptions, a zigzag, a little bit forward, a little bit back. Let some in, keep others out. While history doesn't offer a direct answer as to what to do today, on this policy or so many policies, it does provide a bit of understanding. We've always had this debate. We've always had this challenge. America's always had immigrants. There were times when legitimately, as in the Great Depression, it was probably necessary to reduce immigration, to protect jobs that were here. History doesn't seem to call for a completely laissez-faire attitude, but it also doesn't call for an iron gate. Throughout this challenge, we've always survived and prospered as a nation of immigrants, with new immigrants coming in. I'm Bruce Carlson.